Unpredictably Treacherous Podcast, Beats and Claps Intro. Welcome, everybody, to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast, Episode 9 of Season 1, finally. Cobra, the Black Cobra series, and Fair Game. So Paula Gosling is an American-born, living in the UK, author of crime fiction. Her first novel, A Running Duck, 1974, also published as Fair Game, won her the John Creasy Award for her first for uh, new first novels by the Crime Writers Association in the UK. So the book also spawned film adaptations in 1986's Cobra, a Sylvester Stallone vehicle, Fair Game in 1995 with one of the Baldwin brothers and Cindy Crawford, and a series of Fred Williamson B-movies, The Black Cobra, Black Cobra 2, The Black Cobra 3, Manila Connection, Black Cobra 4, Detective Malone, which is just a mashup of extra footage reused footage and deleted scenes from the three Black Cobra films. Today we're going to look at the movies that spawned from the novel. So FYI, I haven't read the novel. I actually tried to acquire it, but I couldn't find a physical copy for sale uh, at less than extortionate prices on Amazon. And um, I I refused to pay $20 for an ebook, so that wasn't going to happen. I did read some of Paula Gosling's, sorry, one of her other books, part of one of her other books. It was called Underneath Every Stone from 2000. It was a final book in the Blackwater Bay series. And it was fine. Uh, I I could have read the whole thing. I I didn't feel like it was really necessary because it just felt like a run-of-the-mill crime story. It It was okay. It keeps you interested, but it's ultimately just a cheesy crime novel. It was forgettable. Okay, so the story goes that Cobra was written by Sylvester Stallone during the pre-production of Beverly Hills Cop. So you may not know, but Stallone was initially in line to play Axel Foley in Beverly Hills Cop. During production, he heavily rewrote the script as a straight-up action film with big splash action sequences, and the studio read it and rejected it. And they decided to go with Eddie Murphy in a more comedic role. But Stallone took his ideas and he blessed the world with the gift of Cobra, which was loosely based on Paula Gosling's novel, A Running Duck, in 1976. So there's actually a very detailed Wikipedia page for Cobra. It has tons of tidbits about Stallone's ego, the movie's poor reception, the massive editing, etc. Check out the show notes for the link. So Cobra, 1986, was directed by George P. Cosmatos, whose work includes some Italian stuff, Leviathan, Rambo 2, and Tombstone. So nothing really notable there. By the way, I just, uh, I feel I must say, I, I hated Tombstone. That's all. So Cobra also starred Rennie Son- Santoni. Um, so you may know him from Brewster's Millions or Summer Rental, but you probably know him as Poppy from Seinfeld. Poppy was a little sloppy. He's done lots of film, but no real standout roles, except for Poppy. So Bridget Nielsen, 
It's also in Cobra. And uh, she was a model. Of course, she did some acting as well. She was in Red Sonja, Rocky IV, Cobra, Beverly Hills Cop 2. And what looks really interesting, I haven't seen any of these, but they sound great. 976 Evil 2, The Double O Kid, maybe about orgasms, I'm not sure. Chained Heat 2, Galaxis and Snowboard Academy. That sounds really good. She's also uh, done some music and writing in 1987 uh, with the release of her debut album, Everybody Tells a Story. She had a follow-up album in 1991, I'm the One, Nobody Else. In 2009, she published her autobiography in Europe. It was released in the United Kingdom as You Only Get One Life in 2011. She obviously, uh, she was, or not obviously, but she was married to Stallone in 1985 and acted in Rocky IV in Cobra, and then they divorced. That's not surprising. She's been married five times. She has five kids, bunch of infidelities, alcohol problems. She's done a bunch of television. Quite a full life, really. Andrew Robinson, another star in Cobra. You know, he did Dirty Harry and Hellraiser, but of course, um, he was Garrick in Deep Space Nine. That's all that really counts. Brian Thompson. The alien bounty hunter from X-Files. That's As soon as you see him, you you know this guy's the alien bounty hunter from X-Files. He has an outrageous jawline. All right, let's get to the film. In America, there's a burglary every 11 seconds. Ooh. An armed robbery every 65 seconds. Yikes. A violent crime every 25 seconds. A murder every 24 minutes and 250 rapes a day. 250 rapes a day. Jesus. All right. So this while a gloved hand slowly points a gun at a viewer and shoots. I think this might be foreshadowing some violence. As the movie begins, it's dusk. Dusk everywhere. Dusk all the time. And there's a guy riding a motorbike with an eagle or maybe seagulls flying in the background. There's a slummy city, and there's some leather jacket gang clanging axes together rhythmically over their heads in a romantically lit abandoned factory. Already, this seems like it would be great if it were a B-movie, because it's got, it's got atmosphere and style, and it's way over the top, and on the nose with everything. On the nose is very important. I mean, the bad guys are in an abandoned warehouse clanging axes over their heads in a bad guy ceremony. This is how you do it on the nose. But the thing is, it's not a B-movie. Okay, The budget for this thing was $25 million, and it has a major star in Sylvester Stallone. But it is adapted from a trashy crime novel, so I guess it has B-movie roots. Okay, so a dodgy-looking dude wearing a trench coat and a toque enters a grocery store and begins shooting the place up with a shotgun. He mostly shoots fruit and vegetables. The cops arrive, but they just try to negotiate with the bad guy with a megaphone from outside. Cobra arrives in a custom-built 1950 Mercury. According to a 2011 CBS News article, this car was designed by Stallone to fit his character's role in the movie. Stallone claimed that in the 1994, the car was stolen from his garage. Then in 2009, he discovered a company trying to sell the car at an online auction. He eventually reached a settlement with the company and was reunited with the car. The car's ugly as hell anyway, so it really doesn't matter. Cobra looks ridiculous when he arrives. He has dark, reflective sunglasses. He's chewing a wooden match. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. 
He's a handgun in his waistband because, you know, a holster, that's for pussies. Uh, let's listen to his intro. How bad is it? It's bad. Any idea on the guy? It's another asshole woke up hating the world. Yeah. What's happened? Cobra. Look, I don't agree with them bringing you in here. I just want you to know that. Cobra just, uh, he walks right into the grocery store because there's only one bad guy. And he's in the back of the store harassing some family. Cobra makes his way through the store and he gets a clear sight to the bad guy and could just pull out his gun and shoot him, but he doesn't. Instead, he lets the bad guy see him and gets shot at. Then he finds a new place to watch the bad guy and he has another clear sight, but instead of shooting, he grabs a warm can of Coors and drinks it. Then he gets on the intercom and tells the bad guy he's a lousy shot and that he's going to kill him. Then Cobra busts through a door from apparently the dry ice room because there's smoke everywhere. There's a standoff. The bad guy has his shotgun to the head of a good looking young woman. Cobra puts his gun away and talks with the bad guy while he reaches into the ass pocket of his nice fitting jeans and pulls out a wide blade short knife. He throws it into the chest of the bad guy, then pulls out his gun and shoots him as he falls into some frozen fish. When leaving the store, the press is there to pepper Cobra and the police with questions. One reporter tries to tell them that they don't care about due process because they just shoot people. And he's right. Naturally, the cops react emotionally and defensively, and Cobra grabs the reporter and shows him the corpse of the young man who was killed. So that's the end of the first 10 minutes. So we know uh, there's Cobra. He's a super badass. He likes to F with the bad guys. And uh, they call him in to do the dirty work. Cobra returns to his beautiful chalet on the beach. There's no way he could afford this place unless he was really corrupt. He eats pizza and watches a Christmas cartoon with his leather gloves still on. Then there's a news report about the Night Slasher who preys on everyone and has the city in a panic, planting the seed that Cobra must rid the city of the Night Slasher and his gang. So now at night, a van with the guy from X-Files, the Night Slasher, arrives outside of a coffee shop in a dodgy area. A waitress is closing up the shop and leaving all by herself. As she gets into her car, they attack it with sledgehammers and kill her with the Night Slasher knife. Then we get Cobra telling his cop superiors that he wants to get in on the case. Then another killing by the Night Slasher and his gang. But this time, Bridget Nielsen drives by just after it happened and witnessed the Night Slasher without his nylon over his head, so she saw his face. Then we see a female cop who was part of the Night Slasher's gang looking up the license plate of Bridget Nielsen's Jeep and we see her name and address. Plot point. Then Cobra's cop superiors meet Cobra in a parking lot and tell him to go after the Night Slasher. One of the cop superiors mentions something about make sure you get the right guy, hinting at some past mistake that Cobra may have made that will likely never get brought up again. So act two, we've got to go find some information about the uh, Night Slasher and his gang. That means it's time for a montage song. It's Cobra driving around the city, talking with low lives. Looking for a lead on the Night Slasher. 
while Barbara Nielsen does a photo shoot with a bunch of cute robots. And the Night Slasher walks around with his jaw busting out of his face and sharpening his knife. So now Bridget Nielsen is being walked to her car by the photographer, but the Night Slasher is in the parking lot stalking her. The photographer and some bystander gets chopped by an axe, and when the security guard arrives, he distracts them long enough for her to hide until the cop car sirens cause the bad guys to split. Now Bridget Nielsen is in the hospital with Cobra and Poppy, and she reveals that she saw the Night Slasher earlier that night. That female cop is around and she hears them. I recognize her, but I'm not sure what she's from. She tells the Night Slasher she knows where Bridget Nielsen is, and his jowls bust out of his face as he sharpens his knife, and he tells her, she's mine. The female cop tells the Night Slasher that he has to stop her. Let's listen to the clip. She's going to wreck our new world and the dream. You have to stop. While Cobra returns to his beach house to check some stuff on his computer, the Night Slasher goes to the hospital to get Bridget Nielsen, he kills a janitor and takes his uniform so he can move throughout the hospital freely. Meanwhile, Cobra gets a call from Poppy, who is at his office and was told that Cobra wanted to meet him. They realize they've been set up and suddenly some axe-wielding henchmen break in and get into a fight with Cobra. He kills them and drives to the hospital knowing that Bridget Nielsen is in danger. The Night Slasher finds Bridget Nielsen and tries to kill her but she escapes and pulls the fire alarm as Cobra arrives. Alright, so now we're at the midpoint. So now Bridget Nielsen is with Cobra. The lady cop that is working with the Night Slasher has been assigned to their team. She is riding in a car with Poppy. Bridget Nielsen is with Cobra in his supercar. The bad guys take out Poppy's car and there's a car chase with the three bad guy cars in Cobra's supercar. This ends with Cobra crashing his supercar into a boat and the bad guys getting away. So Cobra takes a truck and drives Bridget Nielsen out of the city. They stop at a country store and have some insignificant chit chat. The bad guys, meanwhile, have another axe clean ritual. Then they stop at a country restaurant and Bridget Nielsen has a plate of fries with lots of ketchup. Cobra notices that the female cop with them who is working with the bad guys, makes a phone call. Plot point. They stop for the night at a truck stop, and he catches the female cop making a phone call again from a payphone outside. I think he knows that she is informing the bad guys because he heads back to the room and prepares his weapons. Handguns, machine guns, grenades. Okay, Act 3. In the early morning, Cobra is sitting up in bed but falling asleep. The bad guys are riding their motorbikes on the highway. When they leave the motel rooms, they discover that the female cop is missing. Then they see a lot of guys surrounding the motel, and they get back into the rooms to prepare to be attacked. This is the big showdown. Cobra blasts tons of guys, then they run out of the motel and get in the truck. Cobra's in the back, standing in the flatbed, shooting guys, and Bridget Nielsen is driving. They end up in a factory with lots of sparks and fires, and maybe a smelter or something. 
Once Cobra has killed everyone, we are left with just the Night Stalker, Bridget Nielsen, and Cobra. The Night Slasher has a soliloquy where he explains that he kills the weak so the strong can survive. They end up fighting hand-to-hand and the Night Slasher gets impaled on a hook and carried alive through some flames. Afterwards, Poppy is loaded onto an ambulance with a leg wound but is going to be fine. Cobra punches a rival cop that he had a beef with and then he and Bridget Nielsen get on a motorbike and ride off without helmets. The end. Okay, I loved Cobra when I was like 12 years old and I first saw it on TV or rented it from a video store or whatever, but this movie does not hold up. At least it spawns several offspring, starting with the Black Cobra. So Fred Williamson played professional football during the 60s with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Oakland Raiders, and the Kansas City Chiefs. I think he even played in the CFL for a little while. He earned the nickname The Hammer for his aggressive playing style. But he was a savvy marketer and self-promoter and was able to parlay his football notoriety into a successful acting career. He wanted to portray a strong and masculine black man, and he felt that the public had a hunger for such a character. So in interviews, he claims to have had three rules. Let's hear them. Listen, you're not listening to me. I got three rules. One, you can't kill me. Two, I got to win all the fights. And three, I want the girl at the end of the movie. Okay, some of his other career highlights include being a blaxploitation uh, movie mainstay, getting kicked off of the Monday Night Football broadcast lineup, and I believe that was mid-season. That's impressive. And appearing in Playgirl magazine. Oh, yeah, I saw some of the pics on Google Photos. I mean, no nudes or anything, but this is pretty amusing. It's good stuff. Okay, the Black Cobra uh, film, the first film, also stars Eva Grimaldi. Good Lord. Um, She's impressive. Italian movie actress done quite a few strange films um nobody else really notable by the way uh there are lots of interviews with fred williamson he seems like a pretty interesting guy actually check him out there's uh, links in the show notes there's lots of stuff on youtube let's get to it okay so the dvd cover to begin with has the head bad guy center and in front of fred williamson he looks like commander chakotay from star trek voyager eva grimaldi is on the right in the spaghetti strap dress holding a black cat and the bad guy crew are on motorbikes facing the viewer like on the metalocalypse intro by the way none of this happens in the movie So in the opening credits, they have shots of the city, and uh, there's a really repetitive soundtrack, which you're hearing right now. Police call comes in and informs us that there is a hostage situation. Malone arrives in a shitty car and is told to negotiate and accept all the demands of the hostage takers. Malone walks right into the building, which appears to be some kind of an indoor swimming pool, There are three guys in ski masks and two hostages in bathing suits. Malone walks right in. Nobody's watching the door. 
One of the hostage takers approaches Malone and tells him to get two million bucks and their other demands. Malone says, no way, pal, and shoots him with a shotgun he had under his trench coat and then blasts the other two guys with a handgun and it's over. Then he shoves a cigar into his mouth. The cops rush in and he's scolded by his superior for not negotiating. And before walking out, Malone says in response, It's gone. Human garbage. It's pretty good. Okay, so now six bad guys with motorbikes in an abandoned warehouse. The head bad guy is channeling his Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in Terminator with the leather jacket, dark sunglasses. He has a very square jaw, and he does this smile thing, and his teeth are, are just gleaming and perfect. He's unbelievable dental work. A couple on the beach in an isolated area. He is windsurfing and she's barbecuing a beautiful looking steak. It looks really delicious. Bad guys arrive and attack her. They're going to rape her. The guy comes rushing out of the water to help. And the head bad guy, the one who looks like Schwarzenegger, shoots the guy in the back with a shotgun. So it's it's weird because the guy was running towards the group of bad guys. And he gets blasted in the back by the head bad guy. So if the head bad guy, if he misses, or if there's some, you know, it's pellets, like if any of them miss the body, uh, he's going to hit all his buddies in the group with the shotgun blast. It seems like kind of a dodgy thing to do. Okay, so that's the, um, the end of the first 10 minutes. So what do we know? Malone is a badass uh, who gets bad guys, and there's a ruthless gang of bad guys on the loose. Makes sense. So a female photographer taking pictures of a model in a studio. The photographer is Eva Grimaldi. So hot. The model leaves and the photographer's boyfriend arrives. They're on the outs. So it's night. Now our hot photographer is arriving at home. And when she gets out of her car, she sees an assault taking place through the curtains of a home across the street. A woman exits the house and collapses dead. And then the head bad guy comes out of the house next and sees her. He approaches her and he's going to kill her, but she flashes him with her camera flash and escapes. The bad guys pile into the back of their flatbed truck with a row of five lights on the roof and they give pursuit. She finds a cop car and the bad guys break off pursuit and split. The head bad guy gives us the plot point at the end of Act 1 that takes us into Act 2. She took my picture. That bitch took shot. She better be taken care of soon, I think. You don't think. You don't do any thinking. None at all. Listen. Nice. Good clip. Okay, so now we get to see the soft side of Detective Malone as he scours his cupboards for a can of cat food to feed his hungry cat. The soft jazz in the background is great. Malone gets called in by his boss and tells him there's been another murder and it appears to be the same gang of bad guys and there's a witness. He shows Malone the pictures that were taken of the head bad guy and they are overexposed, but you can make out the bad guy's teeth. The boss tells Malone to protect the witness. So meanwhile, back in the bad guy lair, a dark and cold warehouse lit by a bonfire, the head bad guy disciplines two henchmen for snorting coke. 
He gives them a pep talk, but I couldn't really understand it. Something about elites. Then a henchman arrives and says, she's at the hospital, and they ride off. They brutalize some guy with this trick where they place a chain noose around his neck, and they drag him from a motorcycle until he hits a tree. Then they take blood from his corpse, and they rub it on their faces so that they can gain entrance into the hospital. So soon Malone arrives at the hospital, and they have a gun battle in the hallway outside the witness's room. The head bad guy gets away, but his two henchmen are killed. So the boss cops arrive, and Malone convinces them that the witness needs to stay with him. The dialogue is hokey. Let's listen to it. You know, that's a problem. You're paid to think. And for both of you, that could be a little trying. Now, at this time of night, people are usually sleepy and likely to make more mistakes. You know, Malone, nobody likes you. Yeah, I know. Sometimes I don't like myself either. It's a matter of opinion. And frankly, I couldn't give a damn about yours. All I care about is my work. To finish what I start. And I usually do. Now, you asked me to protect this girl. I did. It doesn't matter how I did it. If you still want me to keep an eye on her, she has to move over to my place. Well, your bunker is more like it. That's the way I like it. Okay, so that's the midpoint. So now the witness is going to be staying with uh, Cobra. So the two of them are in the car and she is trying to have a conversation with him. And he's he's just being a jerk. He's doing things like calling her lady and he's saying stuff like this. I think it's about time you close your mouth. Too many stupid things are coming out of it. He kind of treats her like she's a nuisance. Okay, so now back at the apartment, she's sleeping and he's drinking coffee and pacing around his apartment. He calls a cop buddy and tells him to pick up something from headquarters and bring it to his apartment. If the audio quality and dubbing wasn't so bad, maybe you could have heard what it was. It's dawn now. She's looking through a book of bad guys. That's what Malone asked for earlier. To try to identify her bad guy and she can't. Or rather, he's not there. So the ice is breaking between the two of them now. She makes Malone and his cop buddy call her Elise, not Miss. Now at the station, they create a sketch of the bad guy based on her encounter. Malone thinks the sketch is useless and suggests they don't release it to the press, but rather use it as bait. Excuse me, use her as bait. Let's listen to the clip. This guy thinks you have a picture of his face. You put this sketch in a newspaper, you'll know you don't have anything. He may never come out of his hole. Did you hear him? Do what Sergeant Malone says. Quick. We have something he wants. The bait. He's dying to bite. The camera has a close-up of her face, and her eyes say, go fuck yourself. Have I mentioned that she's a total fox? Meanwhile, a bad guy henchman breaks into her flat to wait for her should she come home. She and Malone arrive so that she can pick up some clothes. Malone goes in first and thinks everything looks fine, so she goes upstairs to get some clothes while Malone gets some milk in the kitchen. What's with this guy in milk? Malone notices some muddy footprints on the kitchen floor and realizes that a bad guy assassin is in the house. 
he slowly makes his way upstairs and springs the bad guy's trap. He and the bad guy have a fight in the hallway and falling down the stairs. Malone is stabbed in the arm and he kicks the bad guy through the window and onto the street. Back at the bad guy headquarters, the head bad guy realizes that they have to go all in on killing Malone and the girl. Now we get the head cop guy leaving his office and driving with his daughter into an underground parking garage when he encounters the bad guys. The daughter is actress Sabrina Siani. Someone made a great video mashup of scenes from Throne of Fire. Check out the link in the show notes. They beat up the cop and take his daughter hostage. The head bad guy says he'll trade Malone and the pictures for his daughter tomorrow at the old power station. Now back at the police station, Malone tells the cop guy that he intends to go face the bad guys at the power station. Meanwhile, Malone's buddy cop and the witness have a heart-to-heart uh, where he provides her with Malone's backstory. Let's listen. Robert never knew his parents. The man in the picture is not his father. He adopted him. He was alone, too. Old and alone. They stuck together, and uh, with all they went through, they found some kind of companionship with each other. Until one day when the walls of Jericho came crashing down. Robert was just a kid then, still in school. One morning, too drunk, robbed and killed the old man. Yeah, you heard me. For seven lousy dollars. Robert survived somehow, but after that, something was different inside him. After he did a stint in Vietnam, where he won every medal in the book, he came back and joined the police force. He's not a bad guy. His battle against crime goes back a long way. Sometimes I think nothing else means a thing to him. Good Lord, who's writing this thing? Then Malone and his buddy cop get a bunch of guns from a weapons locker in Malone's house and head off to the power station to confront the bad guys. They have a long gun battle culminating with Malone ripping off Dirty Harry before throwing a knife into the back of the bad guy and saving the girl. Let's listen. Listen, pal. This is a forty-five automatic. Loaded with lead-plated bullets. The shot at this distance could blow a man's head off. I think I know what's going through your head right now. If you're wondering if I got any bullets left, your guess is as good as mine. Who's got the odd beat? You or me? Today I feel lucky. You want to kill her? Go ahead. You've got the knife in the right position. The sight of blood won't bother me, punk. What you waiting for? Hey, look, I... I don't give a shit. Because I'm going to take one shot just to see how far your goddamn head's going to go. Well, easy peasy. It seems to be over now, but it's not. So then we get Malone dropping off the girl at her home like it's the end of a platonic date. He gets a call to an emergency and leaves. Then we're shown the head bad guy, shirtless, 
with a knife wound in his back, dyeing his hair blonde in front of a bathroom mirror. Like, how did they not arrest him when he got a knife in his back and fell into a shallow pool of water at the big showdown? He puts on a shirt and tie, and we see a newspaper article telling us that our witness is back to work as a photographer. Apparently, that's newsworthy. Then the head bad guy enters a restaurant and orders a scotch at the bar. We see the photographer and Malone having dinner. She has just had her first successful photography shoot since all the hubbub. Malone sees the bad guy, and when the bad guy is about to kill the photographer, he pushes her out of the way and some unlucky bastard gets shot. They have a short gun battle in the restaurant and then a car chase that culminates in a huge abandoned warehouse with a car crash and Malone slamming the trunk of his car closed on the bad guy's head. Then a quick scene where Malone is getting ready to leave on a well-deserved vacation. The end. You know, despite how it sounds, um, I actually like this. Uh, I like this one. I like the Black Cobra. I thought it was really good. It's definitely worth seeing um, if you get a chance. There's actually a DVD. I've got a link in the show notes too, but um, there's a collection. So it's a DVD of Black Cobra, Black Cobra 2, and Black Cobra 3. It doesn't include Black Cobra 4. I'm not sure what the deal is with that, but it's not even really a real movie. I mean, it's just a mashup of scenes from the other movies and unreleased scenes. So, uh, yeah, but anyways, um, it's real cheap, too. I bought it, the collection. It's like eight bucks or something. Totally worth it because Black Cobra, the first one is good. Uh, The second one's okay, which we'll get to. And the third one, eh, it's okay. But, yeah, totally worth it. Black Cobra 2. Sorry, the names are throwing me off. The first one is called Black Cobra. The second movie is called The Black Cobra 2. It's 1989. Stars Fred Williamson, of course, and Nicholas Hammond, who I didn't really recognize at all, but he was um, a child actor, and he was in Lord of the Flies in 1963, and he was one of the kids in The Sound of Music, 1965, And he had a television show called The Amazing Spider-Man from 1977-1979. He's done some other stuff, but not a lot. Um, Nobody else really notable in this movie. So as the movie opens, we get shots of the city of Chicago and some jazzy jazz. And now we're in a parking garage. And there's a fake blind guy. And he's walking around the garage. And Malone is sitting in his car. And he's watching him. A motorbike arrives and meets with the fake blind guy. A drug exchange is about to take place when the cops turn on the lights to make an arrest. The guy in the motorbike flees and Malone gives chase. Motorbike guy crashes and flees on foot from there. And Malone chases on foot. And Malone's getting tired. So suddenly they're in another parking garage, and now they're spilled out onto the street. And why does this guy still have a helmet on? See, it makes me think it's a woman, but I'm not really sure at this point. It's a very slow chase. They both look really tired. Helmet guy gets hit by a car, and when the driver gets out, he takes her as a hostage. Malone blows him away through the helmet, and it explodes all over the hostage. That's why he had a helmet on. So that was a good scene. Uh... It was a really good chase. Uh, It showed a lot of good stuff. What did we learn from there? We learned Malone's a super badass and he's ruthless, but he's getting old. He did one of those Danny Glovers, I'm too old for this shit kind of things. It's good. So now back at the police department, 
Malone's supervisor is yelling at him for being reckless and dangerous. He tells Malone that the government and Interpol participate in an exchange program with other countries. And since Chicago is hosting Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is working with Jim Belushi, Malone is being sent to Manila as part of this program. So now at the airport in Manila, Malone has just arrived and some random dude claims to be an American uh, engages him in conversation. So there's another dude with a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist and the American dude eyes him. A minute later, the American dude has stolen the briefcase and is very slowly getting away so as not to cause a scene. He checks the bag at a baggage counter and then mails the ticket in an envelope addressed to Peggy Mallory before escaping in a taxi. So then Malone is taking his bags and getting into line when he notices his wallet is missing. He seems to think someone took it, maybe the American guy, so he goes running and knocks someone over. Then he gets taken by security to Captain Kevin McCall of Interpol. McCall seems generally disagreeable and doesn't seem to like Malone. Some overwhelming late 80s, early 90s music during the car ride to the hotel. And lots of shots of Manila. This goes on for a minute or two. The next morning, Malone identifies the American guy from some mug shots. Captain McCall knows him as a small-time pickpocket and con man named Eddie Mallory. Good name. Okay, plot point here. They drive over to Mallory's apartment building to confront him and get Malone's wallet back. But when they arrive, his apartment's been ransacked and Eddie is dead. Malone gets his wallet back and they discover a picture of Mallory's daughter. The cleaning lady tells them where she works because somehow she knows it's the Tropicana Club. Two, the confrontation. They visit Peggy and tell her that her father was killed. She tells them that she hasn't seen her father in three or four weeks. It's too soon for her to have received the briefcase at this point, so maybe she's telling the truth. They leave, and outside, Malone and McCall discuss the possibility that Eddie is too small-time for someone to have wanted him dead, but maybe he stumbled into something big and was killed in the process. Later, Malone has dinner at McCall's house with his wife and his son. They like him. Then he leaves and says he's going to walk back to the hotel. And when he gets back to the hotel, he asks the concierge where the Tropicana Club is, and he walks over to see Peggy. Turns out, Peggy's a lounge singer. Peggy tells Malone that shortly after he and Detective McCall left her home, a letter arrived from her father with a baggage claim, and when she picked it up, there was $10,000 in it. As Malone walks her to her car, some bad guys show up and chase them. Malone fights them hand-to-hand until Detective McCall arrives. He was having Malone followed. 
Back in McCall's office, they trace a car to a local bad guy and they pay the bad guy a visit at his business. The bad guy claims that the car was stolen, but after they leave, the bad guy calls his boss and from the conversation, it's insinuated that they are going to kill the girl. So now Malone is on a date with Peggy at her club. He can't figure out why the bad guys seem to be after her, and he asks her if there was anything else that her father sent to her in the envelope, and she claims that there was not. There's a performance at dinner, and Malone gets roped into dancing. Afterwards, he accompanies her home and stays for a drink. When he leaves, there's a plainclothes guy in a car watching Peggy's house, but he is quickly shot by a gun with a silencer. Then the bad guys kidnap Peggy. The next day, Malone and McCall pay a visit to the bad guy's business, some kind of a shipping company. The front doors are locked, but Malone sees a guy in a warehouse and pursues him. Malone catches the bad guy henchman and is trying to beat the location of the girl out of the guy when McCall finds him and makes him stop. When they get back to the car, we find out that while Malone was chasing and beating up the henchman, McCall was bugging the phone. They listen to the henchman call the bad guy and mention, quote, microfilm and, quote, departure in a couple of hours. They call the harbor and discover that one of the bad guy's ships is scheduled to leave the harbor in two hours. Just then, the bad guy henchman discovers the bug and sees Malone and McCall in the car, so he knows they know, and he begins shooting at them. McCall gets shot in the shoulder, but Malone is able to get around the back of the henchman and with the aid of some slow-mo, disarm him and blow him away with his shotgun. Malone and McCall laugh it up, then leave the henchman corpse lying in the parking lot and drive off to the marina to meet the ship before it departs with the girl. Meanwhile, the head bad guy arrives back at the business and discovers the dead henchman and the bug on the phone. Now at the marina, McCall and Malone run into more henchmen and they have the girl with them. They give chase and have a shootout and kill several henchmen. At one point, Malone shoots a barrel filled with gasoline, of course, causing a big explosion. Then Malone puts his gun down to fight the bad guys hand to hand. He discovers that the girl has been shot dead. Then he rages out and seeks revenge by killing some henchmen with his bare hands. Outside, McCall's having a real time, usually uptight. He's blasting bad guys and running out of bullets. He's been shot. At one point, he pretends to get shot and killed. And when the bad guy who shot him approaches, he shoots up the bad guy. The Manila cops finally arrive, and Malone and McCall head back to the warehouse and discover that a ton of ammunition is missing. And the black bag is there, and it looks like the head bad guy now has the microfilm. Malone and McCall go to the hospital to interrogate a surviving henchman slash witness. They want to find out where the microfilm is being sent. I mean, microfilm, come on. 
Meanwhile, the head bad guy is disguised as a doctor at the hospital. He's there to kill the surviving henchmen. As Malone and McCall bust into the room, the head bad guy has already killed the surviving henchmen. Plot point. Now back at the police station, they're interrogating the head bad guy when a news report comes on and describes a hostage situation that the head bad guy's bad guy terrorist group are participating in, where they are demanding the release of some political prisoners, and McCall is upset because they're holding hostages at the building where his kid is in school. McCall orders some cop henchmen to take the bad guy away, but the bad guy grabs a gun from a cop and tries to escape. McCall and the bad guy have a quick showdown, and McCall blows him away, emptying out his revolver in the bad guy's corpse as he lies on the floor. Act 3. The Resolution So next, Malone and McCall are outside the building with the hostages. We're informed that the exchange is about to take place and the kids will be released when a car with some bigwigs arrives. And a bigwig tells us that the main political prisoner that was to be exchanged just committed suicide. Ugh. What do we do now? Malone has a plan, of course. He wants to sneak into the building before the terrorists find out about the dead political prisoner. Before Malone and McCall go on this dangerous mission... We get some great dialogue from McCall and his wife. Let's listen to it. Hi, Mary, it's me. Oh, Kevin, thank God it's you. I can't handle this anymore. I feel I'm close to a nervous breakdown. I just don't have your strength. Now, you listen to me, Mary. And you listen really well. I want you to do exactly the same as I am doing, and you resist these bastards. We are not going to give in to them. You understand? Now make a fist and pray. I love you so much. I love you too. And baby, I'm gonna get our little boy. I swear to God I am. Oh my God, that was priceless. Well, now it's time for the big finish and uh, you need some big finish music. quite the daring entrance into the building. They have to access the ground floor but need to get to the fifth floor and use the elevator shaft. They climb ropes. This literally goes on for about eight minutes. Finally, they storm the bad guys and they kill them before the bad guys are able to set off the bombs. felt like I was waiting for something else to happen, but they just storm the bad guys and kill them. And that's it. And the movie's basically over. Now, there are a couple more scenes here, but the action's over. So next we get Malone at the airport. And it's kind of a fantastic scene where McCall and his family are seeing Malone off. 
Nice of you to see me off. No problem. We'll miss you, Bob. Seriously, we hate to see you leave. I'd like to stay longer, but my vacation is over. You are coming back now, aren't you? Could happen. You owe me a car race. <laughs> no way, pal. I'm too good for me. Nice meeting you. You too. Connection. Star Fred Williamson, of course. Forey Smith, known for his role in Santa Barbara. He was also selected in the 11th round of the NFL Draft in 1976 by the Buffalo Bills. This one's directed by Dan Edwards. The opening credits are shown over a long scene where this white army guy, white as opposed to Filipino, breaks into an electric fenced off army base. Then an alarm is set off and the white army guy escapes with a bunch of Filipino army guys chasing after him through the jungle. Eventually he shows up at the door of his Filipino girlfriend, it seems, who was just getting out of the shower at the time. When she opens the apartment door, he collapses, dead. Then some random Filipino dude is wandering through some tall grass and marshy water, and he finds a dead white dude lying in the water. Now, after re-watching this scene about three times, I think there's a 52% chance this may or may not be the same guy that just collapsed at his girlfriend's. In the next scene, the shower girl is at work at a military office where she is a secretary. Some other white dude named Gregory Duncan comes in and flirts with her before entering a meeting with some bigwigs. She doesn't seem upset over her boyfriend's recent death. Okay, that's the end of the first 10 minutes. I was thoroughly confused. I actually had to watch it two or three times, and I don't, I don't really think I know what, what was going on in the end. Okay, so in the meeting room, there's a CIA guy and a guy from the State Department. 
with Gregory's boss. The guys tell Greg that Charlie Hopkins, the whitest sounding guy ever, was found dead in a river with no identification. CIA guy says that the CIA has been arming revolutionaries who are fighting for democracy all over the world. One of the shipments of weapons was stolen, and the State Department received an ultimatum from a group who claims to have stolen the shipment. The group is demanding $50 million in a Swiss bank in 20 days, or the group leaks the USA treachery to the world press. They want Gregory to find the weapons, destroy them, and destroy all the evidence. So basically, they want him to cover up American imperialism and meddling in the politics of sovereign nations. They assign him a computer and weapons expert and tell him if he wants someone else, he should get someone from outside of Interpol. He says he has just the person in mind. By the way, if you're interested in American imperialism and meddling in the affairs of sovereign nations in real life, check out Killing Hope by William Bloom. Uh, There's a link in the show notes. So now we're in a grocery store in Chicago. Some young punks are being mischievous and disrespectful to the inventory. In line, they pull out guns and announce a robbery. But Malone is in line, and he coolly thwarts their plans. Now back at Malone's house, he's going through his mail, and he checks the answering machine. And there's a message from Greg, who provides us with the background. He's the son of Malone's former friend, Harry Duncan. And he says that his father always told him that if he ever needed help, don't be afraid to ask Bob Malone. Then we get a brief scene that is a callback to part two, where Malone is asking his commanding officer, sorry, his boss, for permission to join Greg on a mission. In part two, the same CO is ordering Malone to go to the Philippines as punishment. But now he's asking permission and the CO doesn't want to send him to Manila. The CO gets a call from the governor right at that moment, ordering him to send Malone, and he does so against his will, prompting the Malone quip. I always knew you were a nice guy. Now arriving in the Philippines and checking into his hotel, he meets a woman at the check-in counter. She butts in front of him to ask the desk clerk for help. Then at the elevator, she asks Malone to hold it for her, and she starts complaining to another worker about her shower rings, prompting the Malone quip. Could you be so kind as to send some at it? It would really be a... See you around, baby cakes. Hey! Malone meets Greg in his hotel room, and Greg takes him to the FBI handler, who happens to be the woman from the lobby. Surprise, surprise. Of course, their earlier encounter amounts to nothing, as it's briefly acknowledged and then that they already met and then dropped as a point of contention while Malone transitions the scene by literally saying, let's talk about business. Malone and the FBI woman head over to Hoskins' apartment to search it. Inside, there's a long white shelving unit that I believe was used in Black Cobra 2 in Peggy's living room. They find a paper fan with an advertisement for a club called Fan Club. Very, uh, very clever. It turns out to be a bikini club, quote. They ask around in the club, but no one admits to knowing Hoskins. 
they leave a picture of Hoskins with Malone's number on the back of it, and they leave the club. After they leave, we see that everyone there does actually know Hoskins. Outside, a fake taxi attempts to nab them, and Malone gets into a fight with a bunch of guys, and the bad guys run off. The next morning at breakfast, the FBI lady says she has to go to the airport, and Greg and Malone go to the port to investigate a lead about a witness to the night of the robbery. What robbery? What? 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 They speak with a guy at the port, and he points them to a warehouse where he claims the thieves stored the stolen goods. In the warehouse, they discover that the goods seem to belong to the former British ambassador before getting into a fight with some henchmen. A henchman was about to tell them some information when a CIA guy emerged and shot him dead. And now back at the hotel, a woman from the Bikini Club calls Malone and says she has some top-secret papers uh, that belong to Charlie, and she wants to meet and exchange them for $1,000 tonight. At the meetup, Greg's got a wonderful stonewashed jacket. Malone has his windbreaker sleeves rolled up to just below the elbow, as per early 90s fashion would dictate. The woman turns out to be dead, and the papers are missing. They get her address from her license and leave her corpse there and head over to her apartment. The fake taxi driver is there with some henchmen, and they beat them up. Then Malone discovers some top-secret pictures behind an awesome picture of Jesus on the wall. Greg also speculates that Tracy, FBI lady, may have set them up. So back at the hotel, Malone, Greg, and Tracy review the pictures. They find a little figure shape on one of the photos, and Malone recognizes it as something that he picked up from the Bikini Girls apartment earlier. Greg suggests they try to find out what it means from an antique dealer that he knows in town. They visit the antique dealer, and he tells them to go to a tract of land at the base of some mountain. And when they leave, they get into a fight with some bad guys. Plot point. Then they go back to the hotel and look at some maps, and decide to visit a jungle in the morning to find the stash of weapons that they're looking for. This is all based off getting a statue thing at an antique shop because they saw an image on a picture. This is pretty thin. Okay, so act three, the resolution. So now, traipsing through the jungle, they find a waterfall that they had an intelligence picture of. They go through the waterfall and there's a passageway to a hidden area. Isn't there a passageway to a hidden area behind every waterfall? And a fenced military base from the beginning of the film. Tracy temporarily disables the electric fence, just like the guy did at the beginning of the film, and they get inside. Tracy gets inside the building to do techie stuff, while Greg and Malone look for the weapons cache. They find the weapons in an underground cavern, and plant explosives on them with the intention of blowing them up. Wait a minute, Malone discovers a big-ass missile. So, of course, they attempt to activate the missile to blow up the entire facility, because that sounds like a good idea. Some bad guys discover them and set off the alarm, 
and explosions and gun battles ensue. Malone finds a helicopter and they use it to, because of course he can fly a helicopter, and they use it to escape just before the missile blows up the entire weapons cache underground. Mission accomplished. Wait. During the escape, Tracy says that she discovered on the computer the location of some important guy's palace. So they land the helicopter, they storm the palace, killing all the guards until they get to the head guy. Let's listen to what happens next. See, you found your way into my home, you presumptuous meddling fools. Put the gun away. There's no danger here. You barge into my home. You destroy a multi-million pound industrial complex. You start a war that killed many men and placed your own lives in danger. All for nothing. Absolutely nothing. I wouldn't say that, buddy. The blackmail scheme is over. But I still have the incriminating documents. They were transferred here when the brain was tampered with and are being transmitted throughout the world at this instant. So I'm afraid you're too late. Take a look at the screen, Sir Malcolm. What the bloody hell is this? That's very serious news. I'm sure the world will be totally shocked. Okay, so Tracy changed the message to the press to the Humpty Dumpty poem, and the blip, 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 you hear is the message being displayed on the terminal. Malone says that the blackmail is over, but it should be noted that the whole reason why this group was able to blackmail the CIA in the first place is because the CIA was engaged in the legal arming of rebels in the course of rampant American imperialism. Just saying. Then the CIA guy walks in and says, the CIA will take over from here. They turn to leave, and the CIA guy pulls out a gun and is going to shoot them when Malone shoots him first. So it seems the CIA guy was really working with the group that stole the shipment of weapons. Or, this just occurs to me, or the CIA guy just wanted to kill them so that this information never leaks. Okay. Then the three of them leave, and they make some joke about the three of them getting together in the future to whitewash more American imperialism. Oh, my heart. 
about watching these B movies is the um the music, the original music that was made for these movies. Some of it is really really good. Um even in this podcast alone, uh one of the songs in Cobra is is awesome. I think it's during the montage. Um I like the lounge music from Black Cobra 2 and then Black Cobra 3 here. I like this one. I, there may have been another one I can't remember during this, but um yeah, it's just one of the things that goes underrated. Okay, the next one is unofficially Black Cobra 4. I don't, there's not a lot of details on the internet about these films, so I, I don't have a lot of details. I mean, I could probably watch every Fred Williamson interview and maybe get a little bit more information about it, but I don't know how much. Anyways, this one's called Detective Malone, Manila Connection, and it's not really a film. It is. Uh, so they made basically a movie out of recycled scenes from Black Cobra, Black Cobra 2, and some deleted scenes from Black Cobra, and then to tie it all together, some new footage with new actors who did not appear in Black Cobra, and the whole thing is dubbed in French, uh, so I guess they can have a new script. So you kind of get some military footage uh, at the beginning and then uh, a woman in a shower again a new woman in a shower though not the one from the previous movie um, then she wakes up a guy she starts a blender with a tv remote control which is just seems completely unnecessary and she has breakfast with the guy Malone opening a weapons locker, the ending gun battle scene from Black Cobra, a deleted scene with the head bad guy practice fighting with his lieutenant, the bad guy gang getting pumped planning an attack, a new scene with the man and woman doing it, the man leaves for work and watches war simulations on several small TVs in a dark lab. That was a weird job. Uh, the head bad guy is posing as a bigwig um, and meeting with a banker doing some kind of financial transaction with a metal briefcase when two of the gang kidnap and rob them. Malone shows up and it turns out that this is the first scene in Black Cobra where he goes to that place and it seems like it's a pool. Okay. And then there's a... A plot point, they kidnap a man who's an engineer and bring him back to the bad guy headquarters. And it kind of just keeps going on like this. Like the movie is, again, recycled footage, uh, deleted scenes, it seems, from the first few movies, and then new footage that ties it together. And they just keep repeating this. And I have to tell you, it's actually pretty good. It looks like it's a good film. 
Um, I wish I knew what they were saying. It's in French, and there's no subtitles or anything. But it's it's sort of interesting. Like some of the deleted scenes in the new footage they show, it's it's pretty cool. It looks like it would be a good film, um, but it's just it's kind of bizarre. Okay, and so I'm not going to get into that too much because I don't really know what the point is. Let's move on to uh, Fair Game, 1995. So Fair Game stars one of the Baldwin brothers, whatever, Cindy Crawford. So, of course, Cindy Crawford was a, a model, Sports Illustrated, other stuff. She was married to Richard Gere for a while, and then she's divorced from him. And she married uh, another, a former model named... I think he's a former model turned businessman, Randy Gerber. Um, she has two kids who are like goddamn clones of her. Uh, one's a boy, one's a girl. I guess they're in their twenties now. I, I just looked up some pictures of her. She looks she looks pretty good still. I mean, her, your face looks a little a little bit messed up, but not not too much. Like some people go nuts and really mess it up. She looks like she's done a little work, but she still looks good. Um, and she was super hot in in this movie. So back in nineteen ninety five, I mean, she's in her late 50s now so she, she looks great she looks good um who else in this film steven burkoff so he was uh cousin gala cousin sorry cousin gala's partner the weapons dealer from deep space nine so that probably doesn't mean anything to most people um salma hayek's in this and a bunch of other people um the girl oh yeah jeanette goldstein is her name she's vasquez from aliens she's playing the exact same character uh, tough gal with guns. Oh, oh, you know who's in this is uh, they're always after me. Lucky Charms from Austin Powers. I that guy, I swear that is his role. He's playing a Russian like hacker in this. No, I'm no, I'm sorry, son. You're always gonna be the Lucky Charms guy. So the opening credits, we have Cindy Crawford running along the beach and some music playing in the background. We get the same orange and sunset colors that they use in the beginning sequence of Cobra. Cindy runs along the beach and then eventually along the strip of, I guess it's Miami. And a drive-by shooter shoots up a store window and she gets a little cut on her arm from the glass. So now we're inside a police station and Max, the Baldwin brother, is on the phone being denied a loan due to his bad credit history. He's acting belligerent. Then his ex-girlfriend, Selma Hayek, um, a hot-blooded Spanish woman, she arrives and makes a scene because he won't move his stuff out of her apartment. Then... This is an eventful cop station. We get a prisoner grabs a gun from a distracted bail bondsman. Guns are drawn everywhere. The bail bondsman is taken hostage by the prisoner. Max engages the prisoner heroically. He uses humor and his own bravado. And he disarms the prisoner by smashing him in the face with the keyboard from his computer. Then Max and Kate as Eli Wallach taught us in The Holiday, they have their meet-cute moment and uh, establish that they're attracted to each other. 
but also adversaries because she's a lawyer and he's a cop. So that's the end of the first 10 minutes. Um, these people are way too real. There's, there's, I mean, Max is, he's on the phone being belligerent about his bad credit being denied a loan. His ex-girlfriend shows up. She's the biggest trope of a Spanish woman. She's dead sexy and she's really hot blooded. And, and then there's a bail bondsman distracted because he, you know, he couldn't become a cop. So he became a bail bondsman. And uh, the, the the prisoner grabs a gun and Max, who doesn't like technology, smashes a guy in the face with a keyboard. This is too much. This movie is so on the nose. Normally, I like a bit of on the nose, but this is a bit it's a bit too much. And they are way too they have so much drama going on in their lives. I mean, Max, with the ex-girlfriend showing up that that's too much and dealing with his credit while he's at work. I'm surprised this guy gets any work done with all these distractions. So that's the end of the first 10 minutes. So after that, we get a small scene to show us that Kate is such a good lawyer and works so hard for her clients and has to deal with dodgy lawyers who are basically criminals. Now we go to, we're jumping all over the place here. We go to the bad guys in a high-tech facility doing bad guy surveillance stuff. And they access Kate's driver's license somehow and her house on some kind of precursor to Google Earth, and they are planning to kill her. Max is now leaving the office, and his boss tells him that he forgot to have Kate sign her witness statement, so he needs to go to her home. I'm not surprised. He's, he must be distracted with all the shit that's going on in his life. So anyways, he needs to go to her home and get it. That, that doesn't seem like that would happen. Wouldn't they just call her up and be like, hey, can you come in tomorrow and sign it? Is that okay? Can we fax it over to your office? No, we'll, we'll send Max over to your your uh, your home. <laughs> he can have you sign it there. Okay. So plot point. Kate arrives at her home, uh, and it looks like a giant boat, by the way. It's surrounded by a narrow moat. And she gets her orange kitty cat a saucer of milk. This is another thing. Like, who does this? I've never... I have two cats. I've never given them milk. Ever. They get water, and they get cat food. Dry food, usually. And then as a treat, they get some wet food. Sometimes these cute little kitty cat treats they like. But, um... Milk. A saucer of milk. This isn't like a 1940s cartoon. So a bad guy hitman arrives outside across the moat. Uh, and he sits there and waits. And it looks like he's going to wait until she steps out onto her boat balcony, her houseboat balcony, and shoot her. But uh, then Max arrives outside the boat. So Kate does step out onto her balcony. She turns around to face inside her house and switch on her television. So she goes, steps out on her balcony turns around, faces her house so she can turn on her television. I don't know why. And it blows up conveniently. And it doesn't blow her into a thousand pieces uh, and scatter her all over her moat. What it does is it blows up and it blasts her in the air and she lands in her moat, 
It's a good thing she had a moat because she landed in it after the bomb went off on her TV. Um, so she sent flying out there, lands in the moat. The bad guy begins shooting a machine gun at her. And then Max, he, he says, oh shit. And he runs and he dives into the air and into the water. But as he dives into the water, he's horizontal and he begins shooting his gun at the guy. So he rescues her, obviously. Okay, and that's the, kind of the end of uh, the end of Act One. So Act Two, confrontation. So suddenly, these two bumbling cops and Max are taking Kate to a trashy but very spacious hotel. Kate orders a pizza on her credit card, um, and the bad guys detect the transaction from inside the bad guy van in real time. So the, the cops are so disorganized that Kate had to step in and say, guys, guys, I'll order some pizza. <laughs> okay. So the bad guys, they intercept the pizza delivery guy and they blast him in the middle of the road. Uh, then they themselves, so Vasquez from Aliens, she actually delivers the pizza. So they have this weird super infrared heat sensor so that they can see all of a person's movements, uh, like of everybody inside of a building. So they're basically looking at this building. It's like the Predator, right? So remember how in Predator, uh, the Predator looks around, everything's all fuzzy and computery looking, and then Buddy sees heat very well. It's the same idea, except you don't have that heart pounding as they're watching everything like there was in the Predator, ramp up the excitement. Uh, anyway, so they're looking in this building and they can see like one of the cops is peeing and one uh, Cindy Crawford's taking a shower and I don't know, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. So Vasquez comes up to the front door of this building and to deliver the, the pizza and a big fat cop answers the door and he's like, oh, I should, should be getting a discount, meaning that like she was late with it and it should be free and she blows him away. And then um, she goes into the building and the bad guys are in their surveillance van and they're walkie talking into her, letting her know, oh, there's a, there's a guy up on the second floor, there's a guy through this uh, door over here because they have the heat sensor things and they can see everything. So basically the bad guys blow away the two cops and then uh, Max had been taking a shower, of course. So he gets some pants on, but he's all wet. So basically he's running around in jeans, he's wet and he has no shirt on, and he's blasting guys. And then, what's her face, Kate? She, um, she's she got like a, a t-shirt on. Uh, she's, what is she wearing? Oh, it's it's a, a tank top and a skirt and heels. And it's very, uh, it's very, it's very comely. It's very nice. So they both get soaking wet from running around this building and the gun battle because there's burst plumbing everywhere. I guess this old building, they shot all this plumbing, and so there's water flying around everywhere, so they're soaked, and it's all sexy. Um, so Max kills everyone except uh, Vasquez, who gets back in the van and, and tells them that, oh, the cop, he's really good, he killed everybody. And um, so they're out of there, and Max is out of there. And Max goes to, uh, finds a phone booth, and he runs into the phone booth. Now it's pouring rain outside. 
and he calls his lieutenant and Kate gets out of the truck that they're in, runs over the phone booth and squeezes in with Max all wet. Um, so Max calls his lieutenant and they arrange to get the, uh, the feds involved and they, they're going to meet in a parking garage. So then Max calls his ballistics buddy. His ballistics buddy is like a relative of his or something. And um, he tries to, he tells her about this bullet that he found that has a, an unusual marking on it. The shell casing has an unusual marking and has a 33 on it or what looks to be a 33, but there is no caliber 33. So she's going to look into it. Then the feds, um, so he's going to meet the feds in a parking garage. So the feds turn out to be the bad guys. I guess they found out about this. They heard about it, whatever. And they, um, they, they, they posed as the feds and they uh, met them to do the arrangement. So Max again has to shoot his way out of the situation. Uh, I've never seen so much spraying water in a movie. Again, they're they're underground. Uh, sorry, they're in a underground parking, and there's water everywhere. I don't I don't know what happened. They hit some pipe up above or something, and there's water flying around everywhere. And Cindy Crawford sliding along the hood of a car, all wet. Yeah, they, they kind of both look like, um, I don't know, like they've been running through the water cannon gauntlet in the kids' area at Wildwater Kingdom. They check into another hotel now, uh, and Max calls his ballistics lady back, and she tells Max that she traced the bullet to, wait for it, the KGB. Of course. It's the commies. Call Rachel Maddow. Tell her she was right. So the ballistics girl, this is the midpoint, by the way, she tells Max that the KGB are big on electronic surveillance. And Max realizes in a soliloquy that they are able to surveil him using the phones. KGB. Computers. They found the safe house. How the hell did they find the safe house? so there you have it this seems to somehow sway the momentum in max's favor because he calls the bad guys back he's using the hotel phone I'll trace it back to the other party. Stop a shot. I know you're out there listening, you motherfucker. What? Fuck you calling motherfucker? You're never gonna get the girl, you understand? What girl? I already got your girl, huh? What you talking about? I fucked her last night. And she was good. Big fucking mistake killing my crew, you hear me? Big fucking mistake. Wanna know why? You have no idea who we are. Why don't you drop the bullshit American accent then? I beg your pardon. Man, fuck you, fuck whoever else on the line, bring your ass here. Just for done, you asshole. Ooh, what a sick burn. Okay, so they, uh, Max and uh, Kate, after this phone call, they hang up. They flee the hotel because the bad guys know where they are and they're, they're coming after them. Um, and what they do is they go to a, at a gas station to fill up and Max smartly takes their 
I'm going to call it a mobile phone. I guess that's what it is. And he drops it into a farmer truck, like a truck hauling all these hogs. He drops it in there. So the bad guys tracing the phone end up following this farmer truck, this hog truck. And then eventually they'll discover that, oh, he's not in it. So he's temporarily gotten away. So the next morning, Max and Kate try to find out who could be trying to kill Kate. And what they do is they connect online to Kate's office. And she reviews her client list and she eventually comes up with a connection. So they they fax the information to the ballistics lady. But meanwhile, the bad guys are catching up with them. The, The bad guys split up. One bad guy van comes after Max and Kate and another pays a visit to the ballistics lady. So there's a highway chase culminating in a bad guy van explosion and Max and Kate escaping. But then Kate, she's kind of fed up. She's fed up with everything and she tries to run away from Max. So she's running and she's, she's running alongside this, this train that's just starting up and she actually jumps onto the train like a hobo and Max pursues her in a car that they have. They stole some car from when there's all the excitement on the highway. So he's driving along in this uh, top-down car. He's driving alongside the side of the train and he stands up on the door of the car and he jumps onto the train just as the car is about to hit this big hydro pole and then it explodes. And um, so he's in the train. She punches him, I guess, for being so dangerous and and being so silly. And then they uh, they start to bang. It's a pretty, pretty good scene. I think this is a famous scene. I didn't really read much about this, but I think this is kind of a, a well-known scene because it's it's kind of graphic, to be honest. Like, um, when they're starting to have sex, like, she's on the... This, this train has cars in it, and she gets on the hood of a car, and, you know, he's standing up in front of her to take her. It's a, it's, it's pretty graphic for uh, like just some random movie you go to. Um, okay, so unfortunately, the bad guys are actually above the train somehow. They're flying in a helicopter above the train, and they detect Max and Kate with their special, ridiculous heat-sensing scope. And then, so they they land on the train, not not the helicopter. They drop a couple people onto the top of the train, and a guy gets into the car that they're banging in and uh he sees them banging but just then kate sees him see her and max and uh she picks up max's gun and blasts the guy a bunch of times and then so there's a big battle max is wounded he has to jump out of the train he gets wounded um the bad guys think he's dead and they they get kate right and they take her back to uh in the helicopter or something like that um, so now we're into we're definitely into Act Three, right? So the bad guys take Kate to their secret bad guy lair, which is a boat, I believe, and the lead bad guy lets Kate in on the entire evil plan. You know, when I ran the KGB out of Cuba, I helped some very politically incorrect characters hide billions of dollars in various free world banks but i get the account numbers magic numbers all i had to do was break the bank codes used for wire transfers and help myself 
Numbers are so beautiful, don't you think so, Miss McQueen? Your client's husband, may he rest in peace, knew about banks. I know about tapping into the secrets of phone lines. A match made in heaven. Unfortunately, you came along and fucked it off. I don't give a shit about you or the goddamn money. All I wanted was the boat. Yes, but you would have brought a marshal with the repossession orders, and I couldn't afford the intrusion. But don't worry. You can have the boat back, only it will be in little pieces with yourself in it. Okay, here we're showing the bomb. This is the Cayman Islands International Bank. To deposit funds, press 1. Enter your international secured PIN number now. And that's obviously their electronics guy connecting to the uh, the Cayman Islands Bank, and he's going to transfer all the money. Um, yeah, so they showed us a picture of a, or not a picture, I'm sorry, they showed us a bomb that they were going to use to blow up the boat. So what, why do they, they seem to do this in really, in some movies where it's, it's a little bit cheap. So they have all this stuff going on in the movie. You know, one of the rules is like show, don't tell, right? So they have all this action, especially it's an action movie. So you want to show, don't tell. So they do all this stuff. They do all this stuff. And now we're in act three and what happens? They capture her and the bad guy basically explains everything that's left to explain in the plot all the little details like um you know i worked with this uh, in cuba for the kgb and i met shady characters and they were moving illegal money but i kept the account numbers and then i worked with um the, your your client and he was he's a bad guy and um you came along and messed it up so it kind of fills in all the gaps for you um i don't know it's it sort of bothers me a little bit, but it's nice. It's just, it's nice to know what all the gaps are, but it, it just seems a little, little cheap to fill it all in like that. All right. So meanwhile, after Max jumped off the train, they thought he would maybe killed. Um, there was a bad guy with him. That's why he was jumping off the train. The bad guy was killed. So Max took some intel off of the dead guy and, uh, and his walkie talkie. So he's able to hear all the chatter to hear what they're saying back and forth. So he knows they've got Kate, they've got her on this bad guy lair, which is a boat. And um, Max actually takes a car to a place called Downs Bay. And I guess he's gonna make his way from there to the boat somehow. Now he lets them know, he calls them from Downs Bay. So he lets them know he's alive and that um, they have to come and get him and kill him. So they send a couple of thugs, a couple henchmen to kill him but he ends up killing them first, uh, including Vasquez. Uh, he has a good little battle with Vasquez and he sticks a knife into her gut. So then he takes one of their wetsuits, presumably the guy, his wetsuit, and he heads out on their boat to the bad guy lair boat where they can have a final showdown and he can rescue Kate. So in the end, Max does rescue Kate bad guys are all killed whether by max or by the huge explosion on the bad guy boat because of course the the bomb was set to go off in like two or three minutes the head bad guy was trying to finish up the connection to the bank at the cayman islands and the boat exploded right so max and kate fortunately jumped off of the boat just in time when it exploded and um they were able to get into this smaller boat that was just sitting there. It might have been the boat Max took over. I'm not sure. Um, it was not damaged in the huge explosion. 
they got in that boat and then they just jet back to shore and they're all set. And that is the end. It was a horrendously shitty movie. I mentioned this earlier that I would talk about it and now's the time to talk about it. There were a, a ton of really tedious tropes used in this movie. I'm just going to list them and then, um, you know, we should see the movie though. These are all worth seeing, by the way, all these movies. They're, they're all good. They're all worth seeing. You just, you just don't need to watch each of them once a week for the rest of your life. But you should check them out. It's fun. So here are some of the tedious tropes that were used in this movie. Uh, lawyers are corrupt. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, but it's a trope. Cops are frat boys with guns. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, lawyers and cops hate each other. I don't know. They should. Um, Russia is an evil arch enemy of the USA. Oh my God. Rachel, are you listening? Okay. It's okay to be snarky and sarcastic when performing your job as opposed to being a professional. <laughs> See, I find this a lot from American action movies. Um, guys like characters like Max, where, like I say, he, he's at work, but he's not really doing work. He's on the phone with a collection agency because his credit rating's shoddy and they're, they've got, there's something on his credit report that, preventing them from getting the loans this is really unprofessional and then his ex-girlfriend shows up causes a huge scene um that's super unprofessional it's like his personal life is all over his work you have to hr should take this guy aside and say like listen do you need to take a leave of absence to deal with some of the problems in your personal life before you come like why are you bringing this all to work this is a causing a real disturbance the other thing is um spanish women Okay, so Salma Hayek shows up. She is yelling and smashing things and acting childish. This is this is their their view of Spanish women, like super sexy, but just too much to handle. You know, um, oh the computer scene too. The, the, the all all people who deal with computers are nerds, right? They go to a computer store so Kate can get access to her office and review her client list. And they have the two biggest nerds there. They have this big nerd manager. And then the, the employee is a super nerd. Um, it's, just, it's just too much. Look, I'm probably being a little bit harsh. Um, I mean, you need some tropes in the film to make it seem believable. But it's just, they have an astounding amount of tropes. I guess ultimately it's just, I didn't really like the film. I actually thought uh, Cindy Crawford... Uh, had a good performance. I thought she was pretty good. I was pleasantly surprised. The Baldwin brother just it was so middling. What a like what a terrible kind of a terrible performance. It was just so god awful. It was also just a terribly written part. I guess the conclusion is that uh, the movie could be unintentionally amusing at times, and you do get to see Cindy Crawford's breasts very briefly. That was a sexy scene when they were uh, going to have sex in the. Um, the train um she does run around the whole movie in like a sexy outfit and she's constantly soaking wet so it's good but this is another problem i have is that i i, I really enjoy b movies that's why i like the the black cobra is great black cobra two three they're okay not so good but they're they're b movies so i i, I give them a pass um b movies are going to be a little hit and miss but black cobra itself was was very good so here's the thing fair game 
um, might say like, well, you're being unfair. It was it was decent, but yeah, but it cost the budget for it was fifty million. So that's sort of outrageous. Like I'm not, I don't know what the budget for Black Cobra was, but I bet it was nowhere near fifty million. I bet it was probably a couple million at most. Um, so I just I enjoy the B movies much more. Less special effects. That way you can justify it being a bit hokey and a bit silly. So that's where we're at. So go see these movies. Check them out. You can go to my website and uh, check out the the post for this podcast episode. My website is ptpod.xyz. Next week on the Predictably Treacherous podcast, it's season two, and we're going to be exploring Banachek. Buckle up.